Legitimacy is the new normal in the United States. 400,000 children nationwide in foster care. How many know that's a large number? 400,000 broken families is what that represents. And as of the statistics that I have, only 240,000 foster families. That's just a little more than half. There's a huge gaping hole in our culture that people needing, needing help. 100,000 of those 400,000 right now are waiting to be adopted. 100,000 children are waiting to be adopted in our nation. That's a massive, massive number. And they tell us that 41% of all births, 41, that's nearing half of all the births in the United States, are out of wedlock. In fact, if you take from age 30 and below, 59% of those births, 59% of that percentage I just gave you, of that 41 59% of those happen with women 30 years and younger. It's an alarming statistic. And these statistics, I believe, paint a picture of the emerging decade that's ahead of us. And God's calling his church to love the lost, to heal the hurting, and to restore the brokenness in our culture. There are over one million maltreated. Those are either orphans, those in foster care, those that are homeless, or those that are in sex traffic trading that's going on, which is a new epidemic around the globe. It's blasting way out of proportion. Children and youth in the USA today. The question for us as a church, the question for me as an individual is, what am I going to do about that? What am I going to do about that? Well, we can start by looking and seeing what Scripture says, because James chapter 1 and verse 27, we have a definition there. Jesus says that pure and undefiled religion is, before God and our Father, is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You want a good religion? You want a religion that has value to it? You want a religion that makes sense before God, before our Heavenly Father? That makes sense to visit those that are in need. That word visit means to inspect or to select or to relieve or to go and look out for. There causes us to have to take some kind of action to make all of that happen. And Deuteronomy 10, 18 says that God executes justice for the fatherless. In other words, that God is not passive when it comes to this issue, that God is intent on it. God's ear is bent towards it. God's eyes are cast upon it. And if every church in the Assemblies of God could just be responsible for one family in that church taking care of somebody in foster care, we could, we could minister to 12,600 children. That seems like a small number when you're looking at 400,000, but it's better than nothing. I want to ask the question today, how many here have been involved in foster care? And by that statement, I mean how many of you have been part of 
um, caring for someone in the foster care system. Would you please stand? If you've been involved in caring for somebody in the foster care system, would you stand? Would you give them a hand this morning? That's five families in our church. So according to the statistic that they're looking at here, we're doing a good job. Five of us are involved in that. And my wife and I growing, uh, when we were in youth ministry, we had several foster children. Um, and, and, you know, still to this day, they're, they're a joy to our heart. Um, and we get to minister to them in, in a, a more of a distant way now. But we were very helpful in, in uh, shaping somehow part of their life. If all the Christian churches in America did the same thing, if every church in America that called themselves Christian would say, our church is going to at least take on one family, you know what happened? We would eradicate this problem, this issue in our culture of homelessness and the kids in orphanages and foster care overnight. And not only that, think of this that all of these kids in foster care coming into a Christian home. You want to talk about evangelism. Imagine all of those kids that are fatherless and motherless coming into a Christian home, coming to know the love of Jesus Christ. Um, my wife's JBQ team, she, the, the name of the JBQ team is The Chosen Ones. And she named them that because Two of the boys on there were in foster care. One of them you just saw, Griffin. The other one is his brother. And the other one is Ethan Rosenberry, who has autism. An incredible quizzer, all three of them. And so when you look at them, the world might say whatever they would say about, you know, someone that came in foster care, you were adopted, whatever, whatever labels the world wants to put on you. God says there's value in that. And my wife and I, every time we hear them quiz, our heart just goes, wow, God, look at the truth that's going in their heart. We just explode. And I can't tell you how many times in our house we left Bible quiz or Bible quiz practice and we've said to each other, it's amazing, isn't it awesome to see what God's doing in these little lives, the chosen ones. And so many of you have an opportunity to play a part in that. And if you personally don't feel like you can be part of that, you know, you just saw several families in our church that are part of foster care. Some of them right now. My wife and I haven't, had, haven't done that for quite a few years. Uh, but um, Bruce and Sherry, you guys didn't stand, did you? I know that you're in the process of, of that and waiting for, they're waiting to take some children into their home right now. They've already gone through all the paperwork and all of that. So, you know, it, it's a process that you have to go, go through. My brother and his wife, they took in uh, several into their home and now they've adopted two of them. I got to be there at the adoption. It was an awesome thing. And it just made that spiritual reality that you and I have when we get adopted back into the kingdom of God, how, how that spiritual reality is real for them in a physical sense that they become part of the family. So there's one thing that I can ask of all of you to do, even if you're not able to take someone into foster care. There's a survey that the Assemblies of God, there's a group, there's a large number of people throughout the Assemblies of God that are feeling the stirring of the Holy Spirit to bring this whole issue of foster care and, and orphanages and all of that 
to the surface, and they're, they're sending out a survey. They, they want the help of all the Assembly of God churches, and we have that survey, um, all that sheets that are on your, on your uh, chairs this morning when you came in. There should be like two or three in every row. Take one of those. There's a survey on there, and if you could sometime today or this week, don't let a lot of time go by because I know what will happen. The, the, the survey with the paper will get tucked in a pile somewhere and it'll never happen. Take a few minutes of your time. Listen, listen to me for a second. You may not be able to adopt somebody, but I think every one of us in this room would agree that there's a huge need here. And even you might have had tears, you might have felt stirred. You know, I feel all the emotion, but I... Pastor, I don't feel like this is what God would want me to do. Well, can you at least do this? Can you at least take the survey? And if you're older and don't have computers, can you, can you find a young person to say, hey, can, can you help me walk through this? Can, can you just humble yourself enough to do that and say, hey, would you help walk me through this survey? And, and it literally will just take a few minutes of your time and it'll be a blessing to them and I appreciate that so much. Amen. Transition. I, I wanted to preach a message on on being orphans and I just hammered it for days this week and somehow it just wasn't the direction I felt ah, couldn't make it happen and uh, Nehemiah if you would turn there with me Ezra Nehemiah in the Old Testament and Esther Nehemiah is tucked right in between there one of my favorite books probably my favorite of Old Testament books is Nehemiah Ephesians being my favorite of New Testament books. But I, as I traveled as an evangelist when I was in college uh, every summer, and I used this book. I preached the fire out of this book. I hammered this book of Nehemiah. Can't tell you how many messages I've preached out of this book, but it's just an, one of those exciting stories to me. And uh, would you just pray as we begin today? Father, we just bless you. We thank you. We ask, Lord, as we look at um, the book of Nehemiah and what you did through a man that uh, decided to, to be bold and courageous, to step up and to make a step towards what you were speaking to his heart, Lord. Uh, speak to our hearts today in a similar way in what you'd have us to do. And, and particularly, as we're gonna see today, this issue of the joy of the Lord being our strength and uh, it being initiated by rejoicing. Uh, Father, I pray that you would take this, this truth that is uh, tucked away in this book and I'm asking God that you would give us a revolution in our church that we would not come into the worship service and try to be pumped up, but we would come here with a spirit and an anticipation and a will to rejoice in you no matter how we feel so that your joy can be released in that setting. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. I'm looking at the clock, and the clock is an enemy to me this morning. Um, and there's so much that I wanted to say. I might just bypass all that I had to preach here. It goes page number one, page number two. Somebody say thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the Spirit of God brings grace to empower any project when it's done in His time. If you don't know the story of Nehemiah, the people of Israel were in captivity. They, 
uh, been there for years and years and years. And, and Nehemiah becomes an intercessor, if you will. It's a prophetic picture of what God wants to do in the church. He becomes an intercessor between the people of God who are wayward and at this time had still fully repented before the Lord and he cries out to God. And in essence, Nehemiah's prayer might sound something like this. God, I know we haven't fully repented, but would you, would you heed your word? And God's word was that after 70 years, he was going to cause them to return from captivity. The reason he said 70 years was because for 490 years, the people of Israel rejected the plan of God. And the plan of God was that every seven years, they were to let the land rest. No planting. Let the land rest. And that God would supernaturally provide every seven years, either with enough sustenance from the year before, a bumper crop the year before, or he would supernaturally, like he did to the people of Israel in the desert when he gave them shoes and clothes that they wore for 40 years throughout the desert. God was going to supernaturally provide for them. And he asked the people of Israel to follow his command. They refused to do that. So after 490 years of refusing to do that, God says, I'm going to send you into exile because of your rebellion towards me. Think of that, 490 years they rebelled against God and finally God brings the hammer down and sends him into exile. How many know God is a long-suffering and gracious God? Aren't you glad this morning? And so now they're, they've been in there for 70 years and Nehemiah says, God, I know that we haven't fully repented, but would you heed your word? Would you, would, you, would you confirm your word and would you bring us back? And so the Lord stirs Nehemiah's heart in chapters one and two and eventually he goes before the king and he asks the king, king, uh, well, he goes into the king's presence and he's sad, which is a no-no in that day. Uh, literally, the king would just kill you if you came into his presence looking sad. So not a good idea. It's always a good thing to fake it when you go into the king's presence, even if you are sad. And so Nehemiah had been his cupbearer for many, many years, and he went into the king's presence, and the king noticed that he was sad. And he said, I notice you're not sick. You're feeling sad. What's up? You must have some, some heart issue. You're feeling there's, you're, something's heavy on your heart. And so Nehemiah offers up this quick prayer, and he says, oh God, please help me. And then he, he, he blurts out what's on his heart before the king. And he boldly asks the king to, to give him permission to go to, back to his home country, to Israel, to Jerusalem in particular. And, and the king does so. He grants him permission to go and asks him how long. Nehemiah gives him a time. And not only does he let him go, but notice what happens. He, he gives him provision for the trip. He, 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 he gives him uh, people to go with him. He sends supplies. He sends an army with him. Uh, so when I say that where God guides and when God sets up a, a project of any kind to do, God's provision is always there. Hear this this morning. We've said it before. But when God speaks a word... Hear me this morning. Some of you aren't listening. Hear me this morning. When God speaks a word, everything necessary to fulfill that word is in the word itself. In other words, God doesn't speak a word and then go, oh, I forgot about that detail. Oh, I don't know where they're going to get the money. I, I don't know. Oh, my, I wish I could retrieve that. God doesn't do that. When God speaks it, it is so. It is so even though in the natural it hasn't happened yet. It is so. It's like an amen when it comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Amen. So be it. It is that. And so Nehemiah hears this word of the Lord. God stirs his heart and he's prompted to go back and the provision is made for him. And now in chapter 8. 
The people are there, Nehemiah is there, and he has scoped out the city. And, uh, hey, Walt, could you make sure that heat's off? I'm seeing people waving at me. I thought they were all waving, and I realized that they're not really not waving at me. Just make sure the heat's off there a little bit. I want to keep them awake for just a few more minutes. <laughs> Nehemiah 8, verse 5, they find the book of the law. And this is the beginning of the crux of what I wanted to talk to you about today. They find the book of the law, and Nehemiah, along with Ezra and others, they, they begin to get up, the leaders of Israel, and they begin to read the book of the law before the people. And something Holy Spirit-like happens, that when the law is read, immediately Israel begins to weep, and they begin to mourn. Now, you, you need to understand that for at least 70 years, maybe longer, maybe 490 years plus 70, depending on how much the 490 years the people of Israel actually listened to the word of God, but at least for those 70 years of exile, the people of God have not heard the word of God. It reminded me when we went to Russia, and I think I've told this story before. When we went to Russia, one of the ladies at the camp we went to, she said, America is headed where Russia has been. For the last 70 years, we've, reje- we've rejected the voice of God. We've rejected anything Christian in our nation, and we've paid the price for it. And America is headed there. That was someone from a communist country saying that to us as Americans. And so here we are, we have these, these Israelites who are coming back to Jerusalem, and for 70 years, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, has not been heard in their ears. When they hear it, they're grieved, they're convicted, they're compelled by it, and they, they fall on their knees, and they begin to weep, and they begin to cry. And I want you to notice what happens. Verse 9 and verse 10, chapter 8. If you haven't found that yet, go there with me. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, and this is after they've get done grieving and mourning and, and all of that, because they understood the word of the Lord. He said to all of them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. When I read this, I was, I was dumbfounded. It's a preacher's dream. You get up, preach the word, and the congregation just starts weeping and mourning and repenting before the Lord. And and Nehemiah and the leaders say, stop. Stop mourning. Stop weeping. It's crazy to me when I read that. But they say this is a day dedicated to the Lord. Nehemiah said, go, notice in verse 10, and enjoy Choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing. In other words, meet the need of those who are poor. Prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy, say this with me, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying to them, Be still. Be still, for this is a sacred day. And again, he says, do not grieve. Verse 12, then all the people, this cracks me up, picture thousands of people mourning, weeping, grieving, 
Leaders get up, stop. Okay, what? We're not talking about just a, oh, we're talking about heavy grief came over them at the reading of the word. And somehow, the Lord was speaking to them saying, this day is not a day to grieve. It is not a day to mourn. And I want to suggest to you something that I think is revolutionary in Christendom. And that is for us, many of us, we come into the presence of the Lord. And it's much easier for us to come into the presence of the Lord and maybe even bow and, oh God, I'm such a wretched sinner. It's easy for us to come in with that posture. But that's not the posture the Lord said to come into the presence of the Lord. I want you to know, I think somehow along the line, religion has turned the table on us, has turned the table on us, and we made it all about us. That if I just repent long enough, if I cry long enough, if I wail long enough and loud enough, God will look and say, yeah, that's pretty good. They look like a pretty sorry sort. I guess I'll, I guess I'll forgive them now. When I read that, this is the picture that came to me. Imagine you have a son or a daughter who's been wayward. You haven't seen him for a lot of years. Let's say 25 years. You love them. You've poured into their life. They've run wayward and you haven't seen them, but they come back to you. They show up and their heart is truly repentant. The first words out of their mouth are like the prodigal son. Father, I'm not even worthy to be a a son anymore. Would you just make me a servant? And the prodigal son's story is really the picture of what I want to get across here because what the father did there is exactly what we see happening here in Nehemiah. There's a correlation here. There's something that the Holy Spirit's wanting to show us that somehow because religion has dominated us that we've put all of this thing on ourselves and if we just do enough work and repenting that somehow God will give us thumbs up and say, okay, you're good now. But the prodigal son comes back to the father, and what does the father do? Son, you cry for three days, and then I'll see if I'll accept you back as my son. Do we see that happening in the story? We see just the opposite, don't we? What's the posture of the father? The posture of the father was open arms. In fact, he didn't wait for his son to even get home. He ran down the path. My son's coming home, and he embraced him. Now, can you imagine that scene right there? Can you imagine that scene right there with the son spending the next week just crying? I don't know about you, but as a dad, I'd be like, son, shut up. I'm just glad you're home. Stop. Stop the weeping. Stop the mourning. Stop the crying. I understand. Trust me, I know you've been gone for 25 years. I've grieved too. But today is not a day to grieve. So we have here in the book of Nehemiah where he says, today is the day to party and the joy of the Lord is your strength. It happens like this. 
we come to church on Sunday morning. We've had a long week. We're overwhelmed. All of us have situations in our life. They're ugly. They're hurtful, and some of them just downright embarrassing where we don't even want to talk to other people about them because we're just ashamed that they're in our life. And if we're not careful, we can come into the presence of the Lord all glum, all broken, all full of despair and discouragement and miss the blessing of the Lord because what we're doing is we're trying to rest on the strength of our repentance rather than the provision of the Lord's grace in our biggest need. So the opposite of that looks something like this. I just picture myself standing here on a Sunday morning. Lord, you know what's going on in my life. And it's a mess, but I'm saying this with a smile on my face in case you can't see that smile in my voice. My life is a mess, and God, before you, I'm here in your presence today, and I'm going to rejoice. Now, notice what happens. When I begin to rejoice, what's the focus of my rejoicing? Rejoice where? Rejoice in who? Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says it again in the New Testament. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, so there's a key here that Paul is trying to bring from the book of Nehemiah to us that there's something that happens when we learn to rejoice. The songwriter said, when you're up against a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes, when you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears, don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear, praise the Lord. So notice what happens. You and I, we come into this, this, this sanctuary, and can we just all admit we got stuff going on? Can you look at your neighbor and say, I got stuff going on? We, we, we've got stuff going on. We have a choice We have a choice to make. The choice is this. I choose to rejoice when my flesh is broken. I choose to rejoice when my finances are depleted. I choose to rejoice when my relationships are smeared and broken and crushed. I choose to rejoice when my health, remember on Wednesday night, who was in my class on Wednesday night? Relentless. Carl, we quiet. We talked about this on Wednesday night, remember? We talked about, we talked about um, Heather. Most of us here know Heather. Heather had cancer. And I remember Heather one day sitting right here about where Ann was or standing right where Ann is here today. And I remember looking back over my shoulder during a worship service. And here she is. She knows she's dying of cancer. And looked over my shoulder and I saw Heather with her hands raised, a huge smile on her face. And she was worshiping God with all she had in her. Something flipped inside of me. I began to weep with, oh my goodness, oh God. 
she gets it. And it really isn't about this sickness. It's not about disease. Paul said, I'd rather to be absent from this body to be present with the Lord. She gets it. And nothing in this physical realm is worth any of that. Only you, God, bring me, draw me closer to you. So this issue of rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of our struggles is a big deal. But it's a matter of our will superseding the desire of our flesh. Your spirit man has to rise up. See, this is the question. When you choose, when you choose to allow your feelings and your emotion and your flesh to tell your spirit man what to do, then you are not a spiritually mature man or woman. That's not meant to be a slam. It's a reality check for me. And so, God, I want to come into your presence. I want to come into your presence, and I want to do what my spirit man should do, not what my flesh feels like doing. You know, it doesn't really even matter if you're tired. My spirit man is not bound by my flesh. And so I come in, and I've got stuff. Stuff. Do I let the stuff stuff me? Or do I lift my hands and allow my spirit to begin to talk to my creator, the one who is able to take care of my stuff, by the way, and knows my stuff better than I know my stuff, I lift my hands and I begin to communicate with my creator. And the word rejoice, we all know that word rejoice means to jump up and down hilariously. How many know that's a stretch for us? It's a stretch for our flesh, but really our spirit man does that sometimes, doesn't it? I, I, when, when the anointing comes on me, my body starts doing weird things. and That's me doing this on the inside. But that's what rejoice means. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, rejoicing is step one. It's not joy. It's the act, the willful act of your spirit to express to your heavenly Father, something that is not there in the natural. The rejoicing is a willful act of your spirit, expressing something to your heavenly Father that's not there in the natural. No, 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 notice what happens. When you rejoice, rejoicing brings you into proper alignment with your heavenly Father. It brings you into relationship that your flesh is saying you, you don't deserve, maybe because you, you blew it this week, maybe you sinned really bad, I mean the bottom dropped out on you, you did something ridiculous, and your flesh is telling you, no, you don't deserve this, you don't. but when you rejoice, it brings you into the presence of God in such a way that all that becomes reality to you in the spirit realm is Jesus. And my rejoicing turns from a willful act, notice this, 
from a willful act, even submitting my flesh to what my spirit's wanting to do, from a willful act to a supernatural insurgence of the joy of the Lord. Notice how it's phrased in Scripture. It always says this, the joy of the Lord is my strength. In other words, God's joy is my strength. That God, when God sees the rejoicing on my part, that in spite of how I feel, in spite of how uh, I look, in spite of what my, my, my spirit, whatever shape even my spirit is in, I'm choosing to rejoice. And in that posture of rejoicing, God's joy comes, and what does it give me? Strength. See, what we're really needing in our spirit, man, is strength, isn't it? What we're really needing in our flesh when we come sick is strength, isn't it? What we're really needing when we come before the Lord and we're just exhausted. I didn't get any sleep last night. Oh, God, I'm going to give you a half-baked worship today. And what we're really needing even in our flesh is we need strength. So the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. I'm suggesting to us as a congregation. I was really wanting to make this happen this morning, but I knew unless we caught this, it could never happen. I'm looking forward to the time that we come into this place. And all of us, if we're not doing this on the outside, and I hope that does happen, I hope God sets these long, lanky things free one day and I begin to do that. But I'm asking God, would you give us a releasing a willful act of rejoicing in your presence. Catch this. So that you, God, could breathe on us. As I was pondering this thought, Nate, you're not doing too good there. Shake her a little bit better. When I was pondering this thought, this came to my mind. That that passage where... To the Lord in Numbers where there's a prayer, may the Lord's face shine upon you and give you peace. My dad used to pray that at the end of every service that we prayed, uh, that he did. And this thought came to my mind that the Lord, as he's looking down at us, he sees the willful act of rejoicing taking place. He hears it at best and he turns his head towards us and he looks down and says, somebody's rejoicing. We're rejoicing in who? The Lord. So we've got his attention and he looks down and he, because he's God, he understands the weakness of our flesh. He, he sees all the stuff. And God's going, well, they're really a mess. And they're rejoicing. I like that. And as he looks down on us, you know, you ever feel like you got this big dark cloud hanging over your head? Anybody, anybody ever felt that besides me? All right. So this is, this is a little vision I had when I was preparing this message, that the Lord's looking down at us full of stuff, rejoicing before the Lord. And because he's turned his face upon us and his face is shining upon us, that the breath from his nostrils, he's just looking at us with great delight and he sighs, he sighs at the beautiful aroma of worship that's coming from our rejoicing and the very breath of his nostrils in his mouth dissipates the cloud. See, we, we ha- honestly, we have a choice to make. We can grope 
and we can moan and we complain and whine or we can rejoice. And if it's strength you need, I can promise you that the groping, the moaning, the whining and complaining isn't going to get her done. But the scripture says, rejoice and God will bring joy. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, as a congregation, we submit ourselves to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves, Lord God, as a congregation, not just in this room, but in any season, in any circumstance where we're feeling overwhelmed in this natural world, to turn our posture towards heaven and begin to rejoice in you. Oh, I pray for that single mom that's just really having a hard time. Pray for those that have handicapped children that are having a hard time. I pray for those that are physically having a hard time. I pray for those that financially are having a hard time, those that are struggling in the workplace, those that relationships are stressed and, and, and maybe even broken or shattered. Lord, every situation in this room, every circumstance, we submit it to the authority of your word today. And I ask God that you would teach us what it is to rejoice in the midst of difficulty in the midst of trial, in the midst of tragedy. And Holy Spirit, we know that you will be faithful to infuse us with the joy that only comes from the Lord. And that joy will be our strength. Would you just put your hands towards heaven right now and say, God, I agree with that. I want you to do that in my life. Remind me of this present reality, Lord God, that your joy is going to come and your joy is going to strengthen us and your joy is going to equip us, oh God. And Lord, forgive us for the time that we've just tried to mourn our way into the joy and repent our way into the joy and all of those are important, but God, it's not the, it's not the format. It's not the format. Because when we come before the king, the king wants a joyful heart. The king wants a heart that's got a smile on it. The king wants a heart that's, that's just got a radiant countenance. And that only can happen, Lord, when we look into your, your face. When we look into your glory. We look into your power. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim, as the songwriter said. In the light of your glory and grace. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I pray a spirit of rejoicing over your people, God. Ah, Lord, I'm looking for a time when your spirit just overwhelms us and we can just take our flesh into subjection and begin to rejoice and just... uh, (laughs) Oh, just a radical way, oh God. Lord, your Holy Spirit will say to us, stop grieving. 
stop mourning, begin rejoicing. Oh God, that the joy of the Lord would sweep in. Strengthen your church, strengthen your body. That you may be praised and glorified. You be praised and glorified. Thank you, Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do that, look full. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strange.